from the CSI Today News Desk at the College of Staten Island. Welcome to the CSI Today Talks Podcast with your hosts, David Pizzuto and Terry Manns. The CSI Today Talks Podcast is your connection to the College of Staten Island with the newsmakers that make it happen. From world-renowned faculty and staff, dynamic students, and community leaders, stay connected to CSI with CSI Today Talks. And now, here is your host, Terry Mayers. Hello, and welcome to the CSI Today Talks podcast right here on CSIToday.com or from wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This is Terry Mayers, co-host of CSI Today Talks, here to bring you the latest episode, Season 1, Episode 2, as we have a fascinating conversation lined up with CSI Professor of Astrophysics, Dr. Charles Liu. Before we get to Dr. Liu, I want to remind you to make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Co-host David Pizzuto and I will bring you new episodes often, and we hope you got a chance to listen to our debut last week when Dave interviewed CSI Interim President Dr. Timothy G. Lynch. It was a good one, and we hope you check it out. Like this episode coming up, all of our episodes are available via our archive on Anchor.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, from our website at www.csitoday.com, or from wherever you found us today. So let's get right into it. We're talking today with CSI professor of astrophysics, Charles Liu. Dr. Liu is an extragalactic observational astronomer. His research focuses on colliding galaxies, starburst galaxies, and the star formation history of the universe. And it also wanders into the realm of quasars and active galactic nuclei. Charles also has a great love of teaching, informal as well as formal, and he feels a great need to help make the scientific community a better place for all people who wish to be a part of it. He previously served as the faculty director of the Macaulay Honors College and the Verrazano School at CSI, and as education officer and counselor trustee of the American Astronomical Society. He's an associate with the Department of Astrophysics and Hayden Planetarium at the Museum, American Museum of Natural History in New York. Currently, he serves as chair of CSI's Department of Physics and Astronomy and is president of the Astronomical Society of New York. In 2020, he was named a legacy fellow of that society. Dr. Liu has a PhD from the University of Arizona and a baccalaureate degree from Harvard University. A couple of his recent books include 30 Second Space Travel, which he co-authored, and also the Handy Physics Answer Book, which he wrote in uh, 2020, it's the third edition. Hello, Charles. How are you? Oh, hi, Terry. Thank you. I'm very, very well. Very fortunate to be here with you. Thanks. Great. Thanks for coming. Uh, so I wanted to start off by just talking a little bit about how you first became interested in astrophysics and astronomy. Well, it's really a simple story. I liked a lot of things when I was a kid. A lot of things. Everything from art to music to storytelling and science and everything. And I was very fortunate that my parents gave me the freedom and latitude to just explore the things that I like to do. And over time, I realized that the thing that I wanted to do most for a career was some sort of science. And that kind of was decided in high school. 
Then I got to college and I tried to explore all kinds of different things, taking different kinds of classes and joining different kinds of extracurricular activities, all ranges, you know, everything from German philosophy to straight up astrophysics and decided that that astrophysics thing was the thing that I wanted to do for a career. So that happened in the middle of my college career and uh, haven't looked back ever since. Uh, I still do all the other things because it's fun. Uh, my life is more than just a career, as everyone should be. Uh, now, I understand that you're involved in a project with the recently activated James Webb Telescope. It's all over the news. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, a... yeah big project, uh, amazing technology. And I was wondering, maybe we could first start talking about the telescope, uh, a little bit of information about how it's different from the Hubble telescope, which was its sure. predecessor, and uh, anything else um, really before its time. Oh, <laughs> James Webb is really the, truly the next generation space telescope. It, it's, if you think about, you know, 2G to 3G to 4G to 5G and, and web and cellular communications and so forth, imagine what the change has been from one generation to the next, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to have our toasters talking to us. In years. <laughs> Scary. Uh, <laughs> as opposed to <laughs> when we were younger and got our first, uh, you know, flip phones and, and, and uh, you know, think about the, the changes that have happened during that time. So, so the Hubble Space Telescope is a classic space telescope that was designed in the 1970s. It's a superb instrument, by the way. It's still running after 30 years, right? It's a great, great telescope, the Hubble. But the Hubble is uh, a single mirror in the middle of a rigid structure. Okay. And so it is limited in how big it can be, how much light it can gather, and it also specifically looks in areas of the electromagnetic spectrum, specifically things that's like our eyes and some infrared detection and ultraviolet sensitivity, things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, the James Webb Space Telescope, imagine this, okay? Take the Hubble Space Telescope, make it 10 times its original area, and make it so that you fold it up, and then wrap it in saran wrap, five layers, each layer seven stories high, stick it into a spacecraft, launch the spacecraft, and when it's out in space, have this thing unfurl like an umbrella. Uh, or a James Bond uh, villainous ray gun, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. It billows out this huge saran wrap thing. That's a sun shield. And these five layers wind up protecting the primary mirror area. And then instead of one mirror, this all this stuff pops out piece by piece like a Lego structure. You know, dun, 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 <laughs> dun, dun. It opens up. And it turns into this big, huge telescope that's 20 feet across and almost 100 feet from tip to tip when you measure the entire uh, sun shield structure. Okay. And then, to top it all off, this telescope is sensitive to heat and not just light. It can actually have the same ability to image the universe the way that, say, uh, infrared goggles here on Earth can image things at night. And by looking at those wavelengths of light, it's able to decipher information from the early universe, things that happened 13-plus billion years ago. It's an amazing thing. It's amazing. How does that compare with the Hubble as far back as uh, the – how far back could the Hubble go? Ah, great question. The Hubble can get close. 
the Hubble Space Telescope can go more than 13 billion light years as well, as long as the objects from those early times are bright enough. But the problem is, the way that the nature of the universe works is that it's continually expanding. And as a result, that last billion, from 13 to about 13.8, that period of time right at the infancy of the universe, is not really detectable or easily interpreted using, infra, using ultraviolet or optical light. And so this infrared light allows uh, us to use the James Webb Space Telescope to peer right up to the 13.4, 13.5 billion years after the Big Bang thing, that last extra half a billion years toward the Big Bang, toward the beginning of the universe as we know it, is the key part that will help us decipher everything that's come afterwards in the history of the universe. Amazing. Wonderful. Uh, and this is where Cosmos Web comes in, the project that you're involved in. Could could you explain that a little bit more, too? Oh, sure. Yeah, this is a great thing. Uh, about 20 years ago, uh, I got involved in a Hubble Space Telescope project, which was called Cosmos. Mm -hmm. And well, the idea there was, let's look at a patch of sky that doesn't seem to have anything interesting in it. Instead of, uh, say, looking at a really bright, supermassive black hole system or at a cluster of stars or something, pick a blank patch of sky as big as uh, several full moons, you know, across and up and down. And you take this thing and just look in this blank patch of sky without the distracting brightness of a distinguished nearby object. And by doing that, you're actually looking at a cross-section of the cosmos, like an average chunk of the universe. But this average chunk will have thousands, possibly millions of objects that we can observe in it, like a beam right through the chunk of the universe that we're looking at. And we can measure things like the structure of the universe, the way that the galaxies and the supermassive black holes are arranged, the kinds of mass distribution, the density, just really cosmic parameters that we're studying. And on the way, we'll pick up some really cool, interesting, previously undiscovered object as well. So that was Cosmos. And that original collaboration of several dozen scientists uh, that I was proud to be a part of ex expanded over the past 20 years into hundreds of scientists all over the world that don't just use the Hubble Space Telescope data, but wind up using other major telescopes all around the world and in space to characterize this chunk of sky, this cosmic census, shall we say, which no one else has ever been able to match since. Make sense so far? Uh, so far, so good, yeah. <laughs> okay. So when the James Webb Space Telescope was being launched, there was a call out around the world for proposals of scientific work to do with the James Webb. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some really cool things to look at. You know, specifically, for example, planets outside our solar system, exploding stars, uh, really cool quasars and things like that nearby. But the idea of taking this infrared look with the James Webb Space Telescope at that cosmos field was irresistible. Imagine being able to add that extra piece of knowledge about this census of the universe, right, this place where now, by now, millions of objects have been characterized. And adding this extra piece, what will we find? Not only will we be able to get the infrared characteristics of the objects we know already, 
but we think that there are things here in this cosmos field that are reflective of those very first few hundred million years of the evolution of our observable universe. And so if we can look at that with this wonderful tool, James Webb Space Telescope, and combine that information with all the other telescope information that we've gained over the years about the cosmos field, uh, we're going to really hit a gold mine when it comes to discovering new things about how the entire universe works. Yeah, this is uh, definitely a more expanded view than than has been done before. And uh, yeah, it's it's going to be really interesting to see what this uh, what this does discover. Uh, yeah, I, interesting almost doesn't begin to describe how awesome this is, right? Think about being able to look at two million objects in a chunk of sky right that goes all the way up to the very beginnings of what we can see in the universe with infrared telescopes as well as the things we've already seen with optical telescopes radio telescopes x-ray telescopes and so on and then having that spatial resolution that you can get because you have a telescope out in space free from the obscuring effects of earth's atmosphere we'll be able to see things more clearly and more effectively and interpret them better than any other time in the history of astronomy. Well, another comparison to the Hubble, how far out is the Webb telescope as opposed to where the Hubble is right now? Ah, that's a great question. Yeah, in order to take advantage of the James Webb's incredible advanced technology, remember, this telescope was designed decades, right? an entire generation after the Hubble was designed. So back then, there wasn't even the technology to be able to handle telescopes remotely that were orbiting very far away from Earth. But now, what we can do is send the James Webb, and we've done it. It's actually happened, right? It's now in its parked orbit now, it's in its service orbit. You send it out away from the sun. So it's a, instead of just orbiting the Earth, you send it another million miles past the Earth toward an area of the solar system called the L2 Earth-Sun Lagrange point. Okay. There is a mathematical location you can calculate it, that if you happen to orbit around that location, the L2 Lagrange point, you can use the orbital parameters of Earth and the Sun and the Moon in such a way that you don't have to expend any uh, fuel to stay in position. Uh, you just have to do a little bit of thruster corrections here and there, and that'll allow you to point outward into the universe all day, all night. Pure physics. Yeah, it's, it's what it is. It's amazing that, you know, Lagrange first figured out that there would these, be these kinds of areas in the solar system for objects uh, orbiting. Um, he figured this out uh, hundreds of years ago. And people were like, well, that's very interesting mathematics, Mr. Lagrange, but, you know, or Monsieur Lagrange, but uh, is it any good? And, you know, what good is it for? And then now we find out centuries later that what it's good for is that if you send a space telescope to that location, you don't have to worry about it orbiting the Earth and every 45 minutes having to close it up because you'll be on the sun side of the Earth. Instead, now you can look outward all 24-7 and you don't have to worry about uh, the sun getting in the way, and it's an opportunity to do 
even more science than you could otherwise have done. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, that's uh, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around that, but I. I... <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, it's even hard for us to wrap around our, you know, wrap our heads around it as astronomers. The, the things are moving so fast, right? When when we're talking about science, these are not things that say uh, you plant a marker in the ground and you're done, and you go home and have a beer and you're all finished, right? Right. Um, it's a moving target. Trying to understand science and the universe around us. There's always somebody with a new idea saying, "Hey, uh, try this technique." Let's see if it'll work. And then people are like, wow, that's cool. That's going to improve our ability to study the universe or improve our ability to run our telescope, improve our ability to, to you know, send our rockets up. And before you know it, all the things that you learned in school, you realize are obsolete. The, the facts don't matter nearly as much as the fact that you know how to use those facts to gain new knowledge and new information. That's exactly what the James Webb Space Telescope embodies for me. Think about it, right? No way could we have thought that you could send this object to the L2 Lagrange point and then have this thing go round and around in circles, aimed away from the Earth all day and all night for years. I mean, this has been inconceivable engineering uh, for me uh, when I was in college. But now it's a reality, and and James Webb isn't the only uh, scientific satellite that happens to be at this L2 Lagrange point. There are bunches of others. There's lots and lots of space out there, and people are just using it to do science as never before. It's really quite amazing. Now, how long is the uh, Webb telescope expected to last? Is there any estimate? Well, it was designed to last for a minimum of five years. And so far, it will hit that mark. Uh, nothing has gone wrong in such a way to make people think that they won't hit that mark. Now, will it extend beyond that? Some people are optimistic. Based on the launch parameters, things went so well. NASA and the European Space Agency and all the scientists and engineers worked together so effectively that we think that thanks to the beautiful launch and orbital insertion mechanisms and so forth, it might be able to last for 10 years instead of just five. Okay. And that's great, right? Think about the Hubble Space Telescope. It was originally designed to last also about five years. Mm -hmm. It's now on its 30th year of operation, 3-0. So who knows what's going to happen? Uh, it's really quite amazing. And um, has the Webb telescope been sending anything back yet now that it's been activated? That, that happened about mid-December, right? Right, right. Now, at the moment, what they're doing is doing engineering data and commissioning work. In other words, every time you start a new thing, of course, you have to make sure everything works, right? Mm -hmm. so you're sending little things here and there. You're not doing the primary science yet. But soon, very soon, we're going to get lots and lots of new stuff about all the cool things that we're doing, right? Not just about Cosmos Web, but about all the neat things that Hubble is looking at. Okay, and getting back to Cosmos Web, what exactly is your role in this study? Ah. <laughs> My role is tiny. Uh, like I said, there are hundreds and hundreds of scientists all around the world that are doing this, and many of them are, are deeply entrenched in it. The two lead scientists um, uh, of the Cosmos Web. One is at RIT. Her name is Jehan Kartaltepe. And then the other is at the University of Texas, and her name is Caitlin Casey. But these two, and um, there's a third uh, whom we call Captains of the Cosmos. Uh, her name is Vernessa Smolcic. She's uh, in Croatia, actually. And 
these three captains of the cosmos are, are running all of the various cosmos things. Like I said, not just James Webb stuff, but co uh, cosmos with Hubble, cosmos with the X-ray telescopes and radio telescopes and other ground-based telescopes all over the world that are working to make uh, the science work. So my part is teeny-weeny, but the part that I love to do about this, all the science is the galaxy evolution. Is about the formation of stars and how that affects this galaxies that populate the universe. The kinds of things that you might imagine uh, mark the aging process of the universe itself. And being able to see it like no one's ever seen it before. <laughs> it is an amazing <laughs> idea to be able to do, right? Think about this, right? Galaxies contain hundreds of billions of stars, sometimes trillions of stars. Our Milky Way galaxy, for example, which we live in, right? the sun is just one out of more than 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. But the galaxies themselves, there are billions of them in our universe, and they're spread out. You know, They're separated mm -hmm. by many, many hundreds of trillions of miles and so forth. And each one of those galaxies is to the universe the way, say, a cell is to the human body, right? And so we, when we study the aging process of the human body, we normally can't look at every single cell, right? But we find some specifically interesting cells that are doing unusual changes. And if we try to study them and see how they change and age over time, then we get a sense of how the entire body ages and changes over time as well. And so the way that I'm studying it is looking at some specific galaxies that are having unusual aging processes or evolutionary changes and trying to understand them well enough to apply them to the entire aging process of the cosmos. Could you give an example of one of those? Mm, sure. Uh, there is a there is one galaxy, this is not in the cosmos field, but this is the one galaxy in the nearby universe that really well represents the kind of things that I like to study. Uh, it has only nicknames. It doesn't really have an official name yet. It's a catalog name, which is, you know, like a phone number, right? So memorizing is not that important. Uh, J15, 24, 26 plus 08, 09, 07, or something like that. But the actual nicknames that we've given it, one is uh, one nickname is G515, which was a, a catalog nickname given to this galaxy more than 30 years ago now. And then the other galaxy uh, name uh, we have for it is called Flagellan. <laughs> and that's a little bit more descriptive because it kind of looks like a microorganism with a whip like flagell, uh, flagellum um, that happens to look around. But this, hmm. this is actually a galaxy that appears to have been formed when two galaxies crashed into one another a billion years ago. And in that process created these swirls of stars and gas and dust, and one of which still survives after a billion years, and it looks like a whip-like tail of a microorganism. And so this thing is nicknamed the flagellum because it looks like something like this. But we know that it instead actually has billions and hundreds of billions, maybe trillions of stars in it just zipping around as a result of the collision. Okay, so far, have I gone too long about this beautiful galaxy, which I like very much? Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> okay, so, so G515, or flagellum, mm -hmm. is really cool because the galaxy collided a billion years ago. Right? Both of the galaxies that formed this new galaxy probably were forming stars at the time. But this new galaxy, Flagellant, isn't forming stars anymore. 
Instead, it has a supermassive black hole at the center that's sort of sputtering. Instead of glowing very brightly or being completely dark, the surroundings every once in a while shoot out lots and lots of hard radiation of different kinds. And, and then it stops. And it kind of flickers on and off on a time scale of years or decades. And we're asking ourselves, what causes galaxies to do that? When a collision happens between two galaxies, can it trigger this kind of strange result that a billion years later you wind up with this very unusual kind of galaxy? It looks like it has uh, stars that are about a billion years old at the oldest, right? Mm -hmm. uh, at the youngest, excuse me. Uh, whereas uh, no new stars are being formed, but it's still very uh, new, new galaxy-like because it just crashed into another galaxy a billion years ago. Now, a billion years uh, seems like a long time for us human beings, and it is. But in the universe, it's less than 10% of the age of the entire universe. So in the long run, imagine a weird galaxy like this, which you know I have been joyfully studying off and on for a couple of decades now, like I said. Imagine looking at that object and watching it age over time and studying it, examining it, wondering how it has gone through the process of its creation over the past billion years, and then saying, well, if there are other galaxies like this out in the universe at, at different distances and of different ages and different times of creation, how can these galaxies uh, be markers or indicators of how our universe has been aging during this time? So that is what I'm hoping that Cosmos Web will see, more of these galaxies like Flagellan. I call them E plus A galaxies. That's not something I invented, but uh, it's, I, I use that term to describe these kinds of galaxies. The star formation was stopped at some point in the past because of some sort of event that caused them to age in a different way than your typical galaxy. So All right. I'm excited to see how many of those we can find, where they are, how old they are. Did they form very early in the universe as well as late in the universe? You know, all kinds of things like that. Wonderful. It's uh, it's a lot of work and a lot of exploration. But uh, I, again, I, I just can't wait to see what this is going to turn out as far oh, yeah. as, you know, I agree. knowledge of the universe. So we um, mentioned early on when we were talking about uh, your interests uh, that you love teaching. Yeah. And... So you mentioned the uh, the manga Digital Sky Survey, and uh -huh, yes. there are some CSI students involved with that. So why don't we start off uh, with you telling us, Charles, a little bit about what that is? Sure, that's fine. So um, a lot of attention, of course, is placed on the James Webb and other telescopes in space. But what that obscures is that telescopes on the ground are still extremely important. In fact. Uh, they probably, as a whole aggregate, are more important than the combination of the entire constellation of space telescopes that are in operation today, because there are so many of them and because we have so much data that we can gather from them on the ground. Uh, it's, for example, about a hundred times more expensive to launch and operate a James Webb Space Telescope than to launch and operate something that's attached to the ground uh, that is about the same size and collect the same amount of light over okay. the same period of time. So that expense ratio is very high, but we have to be a little more clever when we're on the ground doing things because of the obscuring effects of Earth's atmosphere. So we find different kinds of scientific um, projects to do with telescopes on the ground that we can't do out in space uh, in an effective, cost-effective, or uh, practical way. So uh, with that in mind, uh, about 
again, 30 years ago, thereabouts, uh, a group of scientists uh, created a sky survey using a single telescope on the ground. But this telescope would be very high technology. It would be mostly automated. It would be multiplexed so that even though it was only about the size of the Hubble Space Telescope and it sat on the ground and didn't operate out in space, it would still over time be able to gather just as much interesting scientific data as the Hubble Space Telescope, um, but just with different goals in mind and different technological capabilities and limitations. Okay. So this was called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey because it was produced or supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. And so the Sloan um, Digital Sky Survey is now in its fifth scientific generation. The fourth generation, SDSS-4, contained a survey in it called MANGA, right? Mm-hmm. Now, MANGA is, of course, an acronym uh, which is so prevalent out in the world these days. It's not a very good acronym uh, as far as like learning from the, the name of the acronym, what the science is, but it is called MANGA, uh, which stands for Mapping Nearby Galaxies at Apache Point Observatory. Uh, and what it does is that we take the multiplexing ability of the Sloan Telescope, and instead of getting just one single data point about the galaxies that it studies, it makes a map. It takes spectroscopic data of the entire face of the galaxy. This is a technique called integral field spectroscopy, and it's something that's really revolutionary because up to this point, we have only been able to gather spectroscopic data, this crucial data about things like star formation and gas velocities and things like that, these kinds of technical data, but we'll be able to gather from small portions of any given galaxy at once. Manga has been able to get the, the data, this kind of spectroscopic data, for entire galaxies, and not just a few, but 10,000 of them. Wow. It's the largest such integral field survey in the entire world right now. And that allows people to study these galaxies in greater detail than ever before. I was telling you earlier about G515, right, Flagellan, and how we wanted to know about the galaxy evolution and thus the aging process of that galaxy, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So imagine if I could make statements about not just the center of this galaxy or the tail of this galaxy, but the whole galaxy. What parts were aging faster or slower? You know, which sections of this galaxy uh, are dormant now and which ones are active and fiercely forming uh, new things that are going on in there? Uh, this kind of mapping really gets into the details of the aging processes of these galaxies. Right? So it's very, very exciting and very interesting. And there's a lot of data. Like I said, 10,000 galaxies. CSI students have been working with me looking at these galaxies. When they study these galaxies, there's so much information about them, right? Because you have so much information about the entire galaxy, not just one or two data points about each galaxy that you can look at them in depth. And several of the CSI students that have been working with me have been looking at galaxies in a nearby cluster of galaxies called Coma Berenices, uh, or Coma Cluster for short. And the Coma Cluster contains a number of really interesting galaxies, including things that look like Flagellan, the E plus A galaxies I was referring to. And a few of them uh, were observed using the Manga uh, survey 
So we're able to break these galaxies down piece by piece, chunk by chunk, to really study the aging of processes of these galaxies. And from that, infer possible trends and, and processes that permeate the universe in terms of how the universe has been aging since the Big Bang. Wonderful. Is, uh, are, is this mostly uh, graduate research or is this undergrad as well? Undergrads, undergrads, yeah, oh, undergrads can do this stuff. Nice. Yeah, in fact, undergrads sometimes are better than the grad students because they're more hip with the technology. Ah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the way that the way that science works these days, and and I've seen it happen in my own career. Uh, the uh, grand old people, right? <laughs> they did some really hard work. They did a lot of thinking. They said, "Wow, this is some really cool science that should be done, and that we're enabling, and that we'd like to do." Uh, and now we need people who know how to process all this data and turn it into knowledge. And then along comes the young folks and say, yeah, I, I know how these new computers work or how these new data systems work or how the software works. Okay. I'm going to be able to create systems from there in order to produce uh, real knowledge out of all the data that's coming from the telescopes. And you just have this sort of cycle where the old people provide the ideas and the young people provide the technological expertise and they team up and over time just keep moving, leapfrogging, really, the progress of science forward. And that happens in every field, but in astronomy in particular. I, uh, I certainly understand the, uh, the technology end of things. My, uh, my kid is uh, the, the person who helps me out with so many things <laughs> that completely confuse yeah, me. Yeah, isn't that right? I mean, you know, thank goodness for the young folk tech support squads, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> so, you know, the, the next generation brings things forward. And yeah. so that leads to my final question for you. you uh -huh. know, looking at the future, uh, what uh, is your vision yeah. of the future of astronomy and astrophysics? Oh. Um, well, I'll just start answering that wonderful question by saying that I have great hope for our younger generation. Uh, I know that there's a lot of, you know, millennial hate out there sometimes, and, or even Gen Zers, you know, they're saying, oh, these folks, they're this, they're that, they're whatever. I don't believe a word of it. I believe that the younger generation is our future, and I have great hope. I have much greater hope for the younger generation than I did for me when I was a kid. <laughs> That's for <pretty laughs> sure. So I, I think that the future is bright, period. Um, and Anytime somebody tries to tell me, oh, this younger generation is lamer, I say, nope, nope, nope. I will give you one counterexample after another, and they're all CSI students. Look at all these great people that are going to make a difference in this world and do great things. So uh, that I want to be sure that everyone understands. I think that the future is excellent, and, and I think the young people and the CSI students and, and all students really of this time, future CSI students, past CSI students, uh, just going to be a big part of how the world is going to advance in the years and decades to come. I agree well, with you. Well, how will astronomy specifically advance? Well, we have now a flood of data from the universe. When I was a lowly student, very excited about astronomy, this is, you know, decades ago. Oh, my God. I am so old, Jerry. I can't believe it. Ah! <laughs> I think you're younger than me, Charles. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, then I feel better. Nevertheless, because you're a young guy, uh, but I'll tell you, uh, when I was young and I was doing my, um, my research on, on galaxies like the E plus A's and so forth that I was talking about, I remember 
writing a, a research paper. This was cutting-edge information at the time. And I was studying eight of these E plus A galaxies that had been discovered and identified out in the universe. Mm -hmm. And that was a lot. Eight of these flagellin-like, G515-like galaxies. Well, last week, I believe the catalog has now exceeded several thousand such galaxies that we know of in the universe. And with James Webb Space Telescope coming online and with the next generations of the Sloan Digital Sky Surveys and so forth, I believe that those numbers will jump even further. So what we have now is, you know, whereas one person uh, like me uh, was able to study eight galaxies at a time in the past, now we have thousands, tens of thousands of such galaxies studied. And this is true for all kinds of other areas too, right? When I was a graduate student, there were uh, the total number of planets we knew about outside our own solar system you can count on the fingers of one hand. And right. now there are thousands. And so there's so much data out there, so much information that's available. And there are only about 10,000 astronomers in the world right now. Uh, by astronomer in this instance, I mean people who make a living doing research or, or education in astronomy and astrophysics. Okay. So uh, the, num the number of people that are doing the work has only you know, increased maybe by uh, a factor of two. So it's maybe doubled in the past couple of decades. But the amount of data that we've got has easily increased by a factor of 100. So the future of astronomy is very bright because there's so much information that can be studied. And where people now are going to make the biggest impact, I believe, is the ability to look at trends. Look at, I don't want to use the term big data to describe this because that implies other things uh, in our world and society today. But the idea that we want to take a lot of information and be able to categorize in order to organize, in order to interpret all of that data, to come up with something that makes a lot of sense about describing the universe. That's where the future of astronomy is going to be in the next few years. These new telescopes, uh, the new observational techniques, surveys are going to provide so much data, so much new information. And the, the upcoming young folks of our field are going to be the ones that are going to make sense of it all using the technology that we have and the technology they're going to develop to really see the forest and the trees at the same time. I think that's what's going to happen, and I'm excited to see how it could turn out. And with, with all that data, uh, hoping to expand the, the field as well, the, the amount of people who are going to be participating in it. That's an excellent point. There is essentially no limit to the number of astronomers that can work on data, right? You mm -hmm. might not even say have a, a full-time job doing astrophysics research, and you could still do astrophysics research, right? right. The, the great thing about the field of astronomy is that we are very free with our data. Uh, there are some fields where they jealously guard whatever information they have about the world, about the market, about the Internet, you know, things like that. Sure. Because right? there's, there's some perceived value to it. But astronomers, we know, we've known since the beginning, that the value that we bring to the uh, society at large isn't some product or some widget that you can sell, right? Sure. It's this knowledge of the universe, all of us under one sky, living in one cosmos, and understanding how everything works, right? Astronomy will never...
never change the price of bread today, but it has and will continue to change the course of civilization tomorrow. And so everybody doing astronomy, just contribute. Do whatever you want. If we're able to, you know, provide a job for you where you can do it full time, great. If you're doing some other job and you love that other work, but you also love astronomy and you want to do research, it's available. There are opportunities to do citizen science. There are opportunities to do directed science. And we just have nearly unlimited opportunities for whether it's a student or whether it's somebody who in the future or whether anybody wants to do some science, come do some science. And if you're at CSI, especially, do some science. There's a lot of it available. And collaboration is key, and that's a great way for a, for a field to operate instead of, like you said, being in competition with each other. Yeah, that's really true. Uh, if you ever want to get any data from the James Webb Space Telescope or the Hubble Space Telescope or the Slow Digital Sky Survey, it's all available. Uh, a lot of it isn't even password protected. Just go onto the website and start downloading stuff. Start interpreting. Uh, start learning about what software to use. Start learning about what hardware has been used, what kind of data processing techniques. It's all there. And just waiting, inviting you to join in on the discoveries about the universe. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your taking the time out with me, Charles. And um, I. Uh, this is, again, so exciting that uh, it seems like the uh, there's no boundaries here that this research is going to continue and we're going to learn more about our universe and uh, with any luck uh, be a better uh, a better world for it yes I completely believe that thank you Terry it's been a pleasure and and I share your optimism really boundless positive futures await us thanks for joining us for another edition of the CSI Today podcast our guest today was CSI professor of astrophysics Charles Liu I'm Terry Mayers. Thanks again for listening. Coming up next week, David Pizzuto rejoins the show with an exclusive interview he has lined up, part of a great first month of programming we have going on for you right here on CSI Today Talks. Be sure to check us out, as well as all the newsmakers at CSI, on www.csitoday.com. Be sure to subscribe, and we'll see you next week right here on CSI Today Talks. Thank you for listening to this edition of the CSI Today Talks podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to get alerted for brand new episodes and to listen on demand to your favorites. Be sure to check us out at www.csitoday.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.